Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And uh, let me just loosen my belt in this (laughs) post-Thanksgiving episode. Yeah, yeah, I had to quite a bit. Uh, We had a weird Thanksgiving, Josh. We're Indian. Uh, but like from India, not, you know, well, anyway, <laughs> just, we, we didn't celebrate the usual kind of Thanksgiving with all the turkey and trimmings and everything else like that. So oftentimes I just ask my kids and I say, Hey, let's make something special. It's Thanksgiving. We can make whatever you want. And my daughter goes, can we have stuffed shells? And <laughs> I got the. The stuffed shells pasta, which is uniquely like not, you know, turkey shaped. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I said, okay. And then what would you like for dessert? You know, we can get pie and, you know, so somebody did say, oh, well, yeah, I'll get, you know, pumpkin pie. That'd be awesome. And my little daughter goes, and donuts. <laughs> I mean, stuffed shells and donuts sounds like the best Thanksgiving oh. meal. <laughs> They had an absolute blast, but I I have no idea how to I, – I don't even want to tell them like, oh, this isn't Thanksgiving yet. I just want them to just go ahead and enjoy it. <laughs> well, this is, this is, of course, a holiday dedicated to overeating. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess whatever you overeat is fine. And also to overdrinking. Oh, as, okay. Yes. As determined by the – quality and number of admissions on the oh. post-call Thanksgiving day. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay. Okay. With gotcha. your standard heart failure and people who put off going to the doctor till after the holiday. Listen. Yeah. Future, future doctors out there of any stripe, be aware. Take the call on the holiday, <laughs> not the call the day after the yeah. holiday. Yeah, we we have a separate thing in pediatrics, but it's kind of the same. It's, oh, I don't want to take little Timmy into the hospital. It's Christmas. And then, you know, Timmy is hacking and fevering his way through his presence. And then, you know, December 29th or so comes around. <laughs> like, oh, God, he's not talking. <laughs> so, 
Tonight you'll be visited by the three doctors of doctors you should have been listening to in the past, doctors you're listening to now, wow. and doctors you will ignore in the future. Yeah. <laughs> the the doctors of holiday present are actually two. And then I guess the, the past and the future folks can be like one each, but I don't know who they are. But we've, <laughs> we've done a 80 plagues around Thanksgiving. We've done a few others. But this year... I wanted to focus on one of the organs that does probably the most work out of any during oh. the holidays. Oh, so are we uh, sticking with the stomach then? Not quite. Okay. Intestines. Nope. Nope. Uh, colon. No, that's still intestines. <laughs> uh, bladder. Your bladder gets a, a nice little workout in your kidneys. Is that it? Well, your kidneys are getting closer, but uh, ultimately, Santos, she'll have to live her alone. <laughs> oh, yeah. The great cleanser. Yes. I'm a okay. liver, not a fighter. <laughs> I was told that about you. <laughs> so, Before I ever met you, I was told that. I don't. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> All the way back in medical school, Dr. Ward, one of our good friends, was like, oh, yeah, you got to meet Josh. I'm like, oh, yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, he goes, yeah, he's a liver, not a fighter. <laughs> Turns out he was right. <laughs> this that is was, completely that untrue. Accent. Yeah, that wasn't an accent-related thing. Yeah. No, that's just... <laughs> Because Ward no. doesn't have an accent. He he does not. No, no. He's been in the United States for long enough. Uh, yeah. Well. I, I, I think I would love that to be an actual origin story, but I just made that up. So let's, now that we've gotten all the unnecessary banter, now we've gotten all the necessary banter yes, out of the way. Absolutely, yeah. Let's move on to our introductions and then everyone's favorite terrible segues because it's <laughs> once again time for our bi-monthly segment yes. everybody's favorite yeah journal club Yay! Yay! <laughs> and this week as i said we're going to focus on the liver our regenerating organ that does so much heavy lifting during the holidays oh yeah so we think about it, of course, when it is filtering alcohol, of course, you know, and reducing the substances that are alcohol down to aldehydes and tearing them apart and making them so that we can pee them out and not be killed by it. But, you know, it's going to process fats. It's going to process sugar. It's going to send out signals for satiety and all these kind of different things. And it's talking to your stomach and your pancreas and your brain and all these other different things. So, and most of what it's saying is, hey, stop it. <laughs> that's what, yeah, that's what that pain often is, that, <laughs> that devastating pain that you have. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we're going to open with a little, a little bit of a headline that I feel like very exciting, but perhaps a tad overhyped. Okay. Wonder drug that causes massive weight loss could also suppress the desire for alcohol. Oh, wow. Okay. So Sounds this impressive, right? Yeah. I mean, this isn't one of these scary, like, fen-fen or anything, right? No, no. The, in fact, I feel like the the headline is perhaps overselling a little bit of this. So let's, okay, let's dig okay. in. The yeah. wonder drug in question is semaglutide. Okay. Or uh, Semgli, Wigovi, Ozempic, depending on where pharma is direct marketing to you in the world. <laughs> yeah, how you how you it's an it as a non-generic, like the corporate term or whatever it is. Yeah, and there's there's the first issue I take with the headline: wonder drug that causes massive weight loss. It doesn't. It's not no. meant for that. It's an injectable drug meant to help manage diabetes. It's a long-acting insulin equivalent. Yeah, yeah. So it we have two big proteins when it comes to well, they're not large, but peptides that our body uses to say, "Hey, 
store the sugar for me or release it. So the store the sugar is insulin. That's the one that goes up after you've eaten and it signals to your body that, hey, you have lots of energy coming in. Please get these into cells and keep them away. And then we have glucagon, which is, you know, kind of the opposite. It, it, you know, uh, kind of, uh, uh, raises your blood sugar. It releases all these glycogen stores and glucose and everything to, to kind of come out. Um, but this is a little bit like it's different, right? It's is a glucagon like protein. It actually tells your body to say, okay, release more insulin. Let's reduce your, your, uh, blood sugar. But I guess it also has some other stuff with it, Josh. Like it slows so down. It's, it's a synthetic version of the human created GLP-1, which as you said, glucagon-like protein, okay. which increases the release of insulin when blood sugar is elevated. Oh, I, so, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it, it's kind of dependent on what and your sugar it, is doing. It also delays gastric emptying, meaning food kind of sits in the stomach and intestines longer. So you feel full for longer okay. and therefore reduces appetite. It okay. is traditionally prescribed for type 2 diabetes, but since a known side effect is weight loss, okay. it started to be prescribed off-label for weight loss in those without diabetes, and that actually got uh, FDA approved in 2021 after studies found that obese patients could lose 15 to 20% of their body weight over 68 weeks. Oh, oh, interesting. This is really important because we have struggled for a very long time with helping people who have diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes, lose weight. Because the very classically, Josh, if you get insulin dependent after a while, right? So now you're giving insulin. Well, yeah, that does get the blood sugar down because the sugar gets out of your bloodstream and into your cells. But that also makes you store up all that sugar in fat cells. So you continue to gain weight. It's kind of counterproductive. And the main reason that this is a synthetic version, it's been modified so it lasts longer. Again, it's an injectable drug. It's not a pill that you're taking. You have to work with needles to do this, which is why, mm -hmm. you know, it's not as exciting as or popular as other dangerous drugs like Fenfen and whatever. And again, not designed as a weight loss drug just happens okay. to be a side effect, which over a long enough time and with dietary changes and exercise can lead to a pretty significant loss in body weight. Okay. Now, interestingly, this same system, the GLP-1 system on which this drug is based, has also been shown to play a role in addictive behaviors, including, and here's where we start linking to our liver, alcohol-seeking and consumption. In a 2020 study on rats, because, you know, we always start with rats and nobody drinks like a dirty rat. Sure. <laughs> okay. Researchers found that semaglutide and liraglutide led to both loss of appetite, but also decrease in alcohol intake. Oh, okay. Very interesting. I like that. Now, researchers in Sweden, and I'm, I'm quoting a lot of different studies, so I'll throw one or two into the show notes for you, but these are pretty easy to find. Okay. And researchers in Sweden found that liraglutide inhibits alcohol's effects on dopamine production, which is, of course, the reward system in the brain. So essentially, oh. people drink less when they're on this drug because they derive little to no pleasure from alcohol. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it doesn't give you a nice buzz. So people derive little to no pleasure from alcohol. Now that doesn't mean you drink it and all of a sudden it evokes a negative response like vomiting, like ant abuse, or sure. you can't take it because it interacts with another drug. It just means, you know, you have your drink, you have your whiskey drink, you have your vodka drink, <laughs> you have your lager drink, you have your cider drink. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and it doesn't really knock you down. You don't have to get back up again because you're just like, eh, you know, this this doesn't really do anything. So this substance I, reduced... Just two seconds. 
Uh, anybody out there <laughs> who's listening to this, if you have heard of or know of Chumbawamba, first of all, uh, don't forget to take your arthritis pills today. And <laughs> second of all, please let us know so Dr. Josh doesn't feel like he is very, very dating himself. <laughs> is, is this not what the TikTok crowd's doing? <laughs> I would love for TikTok to bring back Chumbawamba because those two were absolutely made for each other. But yeah. <laughs> so this substance, the semaglutide, reduced alcohol consumption by about 30 to 40% in rats that drank large quantities of alcohol for several months. Oh, okay. So not perfect, but it's it's always nice to see it working somewhere. Okay, so rats is good. Yeah, and because it affects the brain's reward circuit, Things that you once enjoyed start feeling boring and bland, which not great for hobbies, wonderful for alcohol. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of scary because that's the same. It's a similar pathway like depression. <laughs> De depression isn't necessarily sadness. A lot of what people will report is stuff that gave me pleasure that made me happy and excited no longer do. And this is kind of like that. So I, I agree with you. As long as you're only affecting the reward system for alcohol, then it's fine. Well, also appetite suppression. And appetite, which is, which is good, which is good. But I can see this maybe, you know, not going well if it's, uh, if it starts, affecting dopamine stim for other things. <laughs> so that's where they got into some of these studies. There was a placebo-controlled trial that compared it to a dose of exenatide once a okay. week for 26 weeks. All right. And patients with alcohol use disorder did not see a significant reduction in their heavy drinking days. Oh, but okay, okay. The study did find that the dopamine transporter was lower in the exenatide group compared with the placebo group. So okay. again... The study is centered around heavy drinkers, uh, right. which that's a very subjective way to define what's heavy drinking for one person may not be heavy drinking when we're looking at scientific studies. Right. But it is nice to see that there's a biochemical effect, even if it wasn't, you know, you have a neurobiological effect there, meaning that you're looking for the amount of transporters kind of uh, available on the surface of the cells. And this is what happens in addiction physiology, right? So X substance, you know, you get a release of dopamine, the neurons on the other side take up that dopamine, and there's a stimulation that makes you overall feel good, happy, excited, rewarded. But after a while, if there's too much dopamine circulating in the system or your brain, the number of transporters actually, right, will, you know, get saturated and saturated. So they'll go down go, and, and eventually you get this thing where you need more dopamine in order to feel the same amount of good. So if you're able to affect in some way, so in this case, reduce the amount of uh, transporters there, then that's okay. That's good. But it kind of sucks that it doesn't actually show up as a, a clinical result. Well, it also, you know, so again, the people that it works the best on and the way the study was designed is for heavy drinkers, meaning daily as opposed to casual or weekend warriors. Right. And these drugs have the most pronounced effects on people who are overweight. So okay. if you're a heavy drinker, but, you know, surprisingly fit, probably not going to do a lot for you. If mm. you are a casual drinker and overweight again may not do much so you really have to get in that for lack of a better word sweet spot where <laughs> you are both obese and over consuming got it yes um however as many diabetics do end up being overweight for those in that group who are heavy drinkers or who suffer from metabolic syndrome this may be a good way to decrease the appeal of alcohol for folks trying to quit. I see. I understand. So it would be an adjunct or it would be a, a helper. It wouldn't be take this pill and you'll be better. It would be, this will be an assistance on your way to yeah. recovery. These are lifestyle okay. changes you need to make. And as long as you're on meds, 
this will give you that extra little boost if you're not feeling the motivation yourself. Got it. Okay. So now that we have established uh, you have done maybe too much drinking over Thanksgiving, and (laughs) if you have been one of these heavy drinkers for a long time, you may have gone ahead and scarred your liver out of its regenerative capabilities all the way into cirrhosis. Okay. Oh, oh no. Okay. Okay. Which cirrhosis just means scarred. It's a scarred liver. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was some really exciting studies published in cell reports that actually just came out about a week ago, November 15th, 2022. Although this has been explored uh, in the last couple months, I'd say this has been making the rounds. And Santosh, I'd be very surprised if you hadn't heard of it because it involves both an infectious disease and an adorable animal. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. So I'm subscribed to the... Triple AS, the American Academy. Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. This is the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So basically, the folks who get together to advocate for higher science literacy and funding for science from government and this kind of thing. (laughs) And one of their journals is the journal Science. And they send me a beautiful daily to weekly digest of, you know, here's your articles, you know, this week or this day. And one of the highly, highly kind of cited and circulating articles uh, was this really beautiful paper in Cell Reports Medicine talking about Josh, our favorite cuddly little animal, the armadillo. Armadillos! <laughs> Which, by the way, I love me some armadillo. They're beautiful. They're amazing. If you see them, people out there, no touchy. They're like huggable little pill bugs that you no, definitely no. should not hug. <laughs> and do way... you know why you shouldn't hug them? <laughs> Tell them, Josh. Because they have leprosy, or a lot of them. <laughs> Yeah, so leprosy is a little bit interesting. It actually likes to grow at a lower temperature than most bacteria that infect human beings. So that means that in that lower temperature, it really thrives. And weirdly enough, Josh, that, you know, that perfect uh, Goldilocks zone for the body temperature where it can replicate and grow and cause disease is around the temperature. Is in the, the balmy American Southwest. Yeah, and uh, and then on the foot pads, actually, the little the little foot to you know when they're padding along the foot pads of the armadillo. So they the armadillo itself does harbor this bacteria, and when we're in the laboratory and we need to grow leprosy in order to study it, um, then the culture media that we use is actually the armadillo foot pad cells. So a brief aside. Mm. Back back to the liver. I didn't want you to think we were going to liver alone too oh, long. No. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Although you should liver the, uh, the armadillos alone. The liver is one of the organs that is capable of regenerating itself. And we'll go into another study about that shortly. Mm-hmm. But a cirrhotic liver, once the liver has become scarred, those scarred portions can no longer regenerate. Yeah, so your liver, uh, how how long is it, Josh? Maybe once every seven years, you have a brand new liver. I can't remember the turnover time for the liver, but you, you're the the cells are always dividing and working and dying, and we're dividing and working. And dying. So your liver is constantly regenerating itself. About but thirty days. Thirty days. That's what it is. Thank you. So every thirty days, you get a brand new liver. <laughs> but liver cells, hepatocytes can make more liver cells, but after damage, fibrosis, scar tissue, fibroblasts, those are not liver cells and they can't replicate into more liver cells. Nor so, can they perform the basic functions of the liver. Right. They can't do the filtration. They can't make bile. They can't break down your red blood cells and the porphyrin and everything. So um, you're just left with scar tissue and- the more scar tissue fills in and there's less area for the healthy liver tissue to grow, it progresses and progresses and eventually not, not enough functioning liver and the toxins kill you. So what's the armadillo about this study? <laughs> what is the armadillo? 
leprosy-causing bacteria can mm-hmm. reprogram cells to increase the size of the liver without causing damage, scarring, or tumors. Wow. What does that actually mean? I know you're saying wow because we get it. <laughs> but listening audience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. It's just, this, study, just... <laughs> this study could be exploited to renew aging livers, to mm-hmm. regrow injured livers, which would reduce the need for liver transplant in cirrhotics who have lost a lot of their liver tissue and function. And that's pretty much the only cure for people with end-stage liver disease as a transplant. So if you can regrow damaged liver, or if you can grow new liver out of existing liver tissue to take up the space of the damaged liver, you can avoid a transplant. That does not mean you can start going on a free-for-all drinking binge, but it does mean (laughs) in people who have lost all of their liver function or enough liver function to severely compromise their health, we might be able to give them leprosy and start regrowing the liver. No, 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 no. That's not. Why, why you got to do that? Because it irritates you and it's fun. (laughs) That's not, it's not much of a science show. If one of us doesn't get to educate, you have to start with the misconception. (laughs) This is like the the TV show that was like they get sued because they showed a person putting on a magic cape and flying and then the little kids like try to jump off their roofs. Luckily, <laughs> we're in audio only for now. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right. So here <laughs> so we've got the bacteria that causes leprosy, Mycobacterium leprae. Okay. The phase of study that we are at right now (laughs) is very, very early on where we were actually able to have the observation first that these nine banded armadillos, when they had leprosy, they were regenerating their liver. But this was an actual controlled experiment with those same armadillos. So they took the livers out, they put the mycobacterium leprae in, um, and then they were able to actually see the the liver lobules and everything um, and measure out how many, you know, versus control versus infected, how much liver tissue was kind of regenerated over time. So this is not what we want to do straight up because leprosy is still a very deadly disease. And we certainly all right, don't. All right. So yeah. I'll, I will come, I'll walk back the earlier statement. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> these researchers, at, these professors in regenerative medicine at the university of Edinburgh mm-hmm. exploited the ability of this mycobacterium to reprogram cells to grow. So they worked in conjunction with the U S department of health and human services in Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. And because armadillos are a natural host for leprosy, that's why they were used as an infection model. And when they looked at the livers that were increasing, because just having a liver that increases in size is not necessarily good. You may see that with fatty liver. That's something we call hepatomegaly. And fatty liver doesn't mean, oh, look, your liver's obese. It means it's turned into a lot of fatty tissue, which is a step on the way to scarring and cirrhosis. Yeah. So the uh, having fat infiltrate the liver tissue is just as bad. But usually if you're at that point, and that does happen to us if we get obese, if we're eating too much, diabetes and liver damage, hepatitis. but it's reversible-ish at that stage. So despite the increase in liver size, where it is approaching hepatomegaly or large liver status, all these livers when examined were healthy liver and displayed the same kind of tissue architecture as normal liver. So it was regenerating, it was getting bigger, but you were not seeing these problems with it. So they demonstrated that liver cells infected with these mycobacteria would undergo reprogramming as a result that reverted them into an immature state, restoring their ability to regenerate. This is so cool. I actually love where this story came from originally. So 
they're at Edinburgh and Anura Rambukana, who's at the university, they were actually using leprosy on Schwann cells. And these are the cells that kind of cover and insulate neurons, right? So they're the, they're the insulation for your neuron wires. And they saw that like the, the bacteria would settle in and then boom, they would become less mature. They look more like stem cells and they were kind of, Hey, what's going on here? What's going on? But then they said, Hey, who's got leprosy? Okay. Armadillos. So she just gave a phone call. She said, Hey, uh, what's going on with your armadillos? You know, what's up with their organs or anything like that? And one of them, just like incidentally said, Oh, well, the, their livers are always bigger than the uninfected ones. And they freaked out. They're like, Oh my God. That's <laughs> so that's how this actual, the idea came. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Came about and they got to test it. We'll see if the gene expression caused by leprosy may lead to teaching liver cells how to get a little bit of a fountain of youth, regain mm-hmm. some of that vim and vigor and regenerative capability. And then we could use that yes. in order to help treat our cirrhotic patients and decrease the number of liver transplants. Yeah. Anything that we can do to move away for the need for transplantation is always a good thing. Not just you know, you have to wish for somebody to either pass away or become brain dead or donate a liver tissue or that kind of a thing. But you're now having incompatibility. And so you have to live with immunosuppressants, all these things. But if you can grow your own liver back, whoo boy, that's the best. Which brings us to our next story. Yeah. Because if you can grow your own liver back, you can pass it on to the next guy. Livers, <laughs> livers can become treasured family heirlooms because this <laughs> next study has demonstrated that the liver itself can stay alive and functional for over a hundred years across multiple donors and recipients. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is such a cool story. Josh, t- tell us about it, but I want everybody to think about, you know, the the number of livers they had to go through in order to check this out. Josh, 253,000 livers transplanted between 1990 and 2022, okay? And they selected 25 of these for this particular study. But yeah, tell us all about it. What happened? What did they do? So let's learn how you're carrying a little piece of eternity in you. A research team composed of members from the University of Texas and Transmedics and Transmedics Massachusetts have, based on this small but growing eh, subset of livers (laughs) that have been transplanted at least once and often several times, looked at the cumulative age and essentially, which is better? Which is longer lived? A liver or, say, an iPhone? And (laughs) the answer may surprise you. (laughs) So... Just to kind of put this into perspective, so, you know, you've got uh, Joey up in Massachusetts and Leroy down in Texas. And so Joey gave Leroy a liver. Leroy is growing up with the liver, growing up, is taking his medication, they're getting all. And then Leroy has a friend, Sally, and Sally goes, oh, Leroy, I need a liver. And then Leroy's like, well, I got my liver from somebody else, but maybe I can donate this donated liver to you. And, you know, you can get evaluated, all this kind of thing. They're a match. 
And they're like, yeah, Leroy, you could totally donate your donated liver. <laughs> so the researchers looked at pre-transplant survival, essentially how long the donor had lived before, you know, their liver became, shall yeah. we say, available. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As well as how long the liver once transplanted went on to survive in the recipient before it failed or the recipient died or whatever. Yeah. Um, and now livers are a little bit special, right, Josh? A little bit like kidneys. You can actually donate a piece of your liver and the rest of your liver will regenerate and you can donate it into the the person. The recipient will actually grow a new liver out of the donated piece as long as they're both big enough. And this may ultimately be helped by the armadillo, which I wonder if that'll <laughs> become the next Marvel superhero. Yeah. It's not quite as intimidating. Yeah, yeah. The oh, armadillo? No, it's, oh, no, it's Wolverine. <laughs> Watch out. It's the armadillo. He yeah. can heal from almost anything. Uh, <laughs> no. So the lead study author, Yash Kadakia, over at UT Southwestern Medical School, helped to select. So they stratified or selected out these livers with over 100-year survival and Come identified yes. and identified donor factors, recipient factors, and transplant factors. So they they were looking for 100-year-old livers. And in order to find <laughs> these elderly livers, which wouldn't necessarily be in elderly people, yeah, the team yeah. used the United Network for Organ Sharing, UNOS, Starfile, mm -hmm. to identify these 100-year-old livers measured by adding up their initial age at transplant to the post-transplant survival period. Very cool. Okay. All right. Now, how does that happen? Because you're like, oh, maybe if I take a liver from a 25-year-old, that means it's got to go through several people before it reaches <laughs> yeah. 100 years of age. Sure, or sure. Or one really long-lived one. Uh -huh, so yeah. most of these long-lived livers, oh, that's fun to say, <laughs> came from older donors. The average donor age was higher than that of donors for livers that did not pass 100 years of age. Meaning... Wow. The average donor age was around 84 years versus folks that didn't have livers that made it 100 years. And yeah. those were around 38 to 40. So this is, it's a little interesting, Josh. What we're kind of saying is that, you know, you've got, you know, Grandpa Joe who decides to donate a liver at age 80 something through to their, you know, whoever needs it. Meaning Grandpa Joe can leave you his liver in his will yeah. and you can make <laughs> use of it. Yeah, yeah. But what that means is that healthy liver, which was either donated, you know, live because the, the person was healthy enough to give a piece and send it, or the person became brain dead or something like that. And the, the liver was taken out as the person was dying. So that liver was healthy enough to donate. It, it passed a number of criteria. But interestingly, it also means it kind of, it, it stood the test of time. It was still healthy at 80 plus years of age. My liver went uphill to school both ways, <laughs> fought through World War II, fought through two world wars and a depression. <laughs> I, I would love it if... Millennial the, livers today. <laughs> no work ethic. I would actually love it if the 80 year old liver gets transplanted into like a little 20 year old hipster and then the 20 year old hipster becomes a curmudgeonly, you know, Vietnam vet. <laughs> but, but yeah, the thing is for all the jokes, that kind of is what's happening because another notable difference between the groups, yeah. the livers that made it a hundred years of age sure. came from older donors. And like we said, older 84 versus 40. Huge and difference. Yeah. Donors from this centenarian liver group also tended to have lower incidence of diabetes, which mm -hmm. we really didn't see as much if you're looking at the boomer generation. Right. Fewer right. donor infections okay. and lower overall levels of transaminases, which can indicate anything from inflammation to years of heavy drinking. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, uh, if your liver cells break open, they get damaged. The proteins inside of them that are actually doing a lot of the work are called transaminases. And so if the amount of transaminases is high in your blood, that means liver cells are dying and shedding these into your bloodstream. So now 
you have to have normal transaminases in order to donate a liver because you know that that liver has to be healthy to give to another recipient you can't be giving the recipient a dying liver but this means that it was just even lower normal than you know other folks and transplants or grafts of the livers in the over 100 years group and and again i have to keep saying this when i say over 100 i mean the liver is over 100 not yeah, the person yeah. <laughs> getting it so uh, no grafts of livers in the over 100 year group were lost to complications of primary non-function meaning you put the liver in and it simply doesn't take right complications that were vascular related meaning you put the liver in and all the plumbing essentially doesn't work yeah yeah okay or biliary complications I mean you put the liver in and it can't regulate bile to do the things that a liver is supposed to do okay so some of the most common reasons essentially for the liver to up and and die in a in a recipient so those didn't happen yeah these wise so, elder statesman livers <laughs> none of them stopped functioning okay but did they get rejected no significant differences were found in the rejection rate at one year between the two groups of transplanted livers. So two groups, meaning the 100 plus years and then the, the young livers. The standard, right. Gotcha. The younglings. The young, <laughs> the whippersnappers. <laughs> also, outcomes for the over 100 group actually had better patient survival outcomes and allografts, meaning once the new host died the successful organ, the organ could be successfully harvested and moved on to somebody else. So <laughs> hand-me-downs, heirloom livers. <laughs> this is so cool. Josh, this is like when, um, you know, when, when, you know, folks come over from India and stuff, they bring various things with them. One of the things that gets passed on for a long time is a bacterial culture for yogurt right? So we make our own yogurt at home. You take a little bit of that, that yogurt and you put it into a new batch of milk and boom, you know, you cook it up together and you get homemade yogurt um, because that's the, that's the seed. And oftentimes that little, that little culture is passed on from, you know, generation to generation or sent to other households. This is kind of like that. It's so cool. Now, what this means is this could vastly widen the pool of available liver transplants because we've traditionally avoided taking organs from older people because for lack of a better word they're old yeah <laughs> yeah the the assumption is that the original liver cells that these people had when they were embryos right like they were you know turning into fetuses and the liver cells were differentiating they've undergone so many cycles of replication and we know that errors accumulate over time with replication so now you you're prone to dna damage and ultimately that is you know cell failure and or cancer so there were a lot of people who were excluded because of that i said no so we may be able to start accepting uh more elderly patients as liver transplant donors mm-hmm or, you know, again, grandparents could deed their livers down. <laughs> and the reason we really don't know how long you could keep passing these livers around is the very first successful liver transplant was only performed in 1967. That's really not that long yeah. ago. <laughs> it's it's kind of, it's weird to think about, right? It's, this that's is a why, young That's science. why out of... You know, 200,000 studied livers, they were only able to find 25 that yeah. met the criteria of being over 100 years old. Because yeah. how are you going to find a 100-year-old worth lifetime worth of liver when you only started doing liver transplants in the 70s? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's a young science, and so we have to kind of learn as we go. But it's cool that we can do this now, that we can explore these possibilities. It's, it, it's incredibly exciting. I absolutely love it. So let's see. What have we covered over this episode before we move on to our final study? We've learned about a diabetic drug that may decrease your likelihood of drinking alcohol, thus sparing your liver. Mm -hmm. 
we've then learned about a, well, deadly or certainly disability causing bacteria that may help you to regrow a liver that has been damaged by excessive drinking. Here's hoping. Absolutely. (laughs) And now we've also learned of a possible additional source for donor transplant livers. This is three great opportunities to, you know, regrow the liver and really advance the field of hepatology uh, and has a lot of hope for those of us who have spent too much time drinking after being with family during the holidays. (laughs) Well, as you mentioned at the top of this, I agree with you that this shouldn't give us a license to just go out and abuse ourselves. We shouldn't be doing that. We can't be getting into a thing of like laissez-faire of like, oh, you know, whatever. We'll just, you know, make a new one or whatever it is. Do imagine, okay, and remember that even if these bear fruit, okay, the actual things that you go through as your liver is dying and getting damaged and all these kind of things – that that's horrible. Okay. You're going to feel absolutely wrecked. Not to mention you actually get liver toxicity that messes with your brain and you'll actually, you know, you could get dumber and all this kind of other stuff, but there's also going to be forever, you know, every person who gets a new liver or we regrow it or it's hard work, it's energy, and it's a lot of love and behind the scenes stuff going on. It's not boom, you snap your fingers and it's a new liver. So let's take some stress off the system. Okay. The, the best way to avoid all of this is maybe not to wreck your liver and save these for people where there's no alternative. You know, they have a chronic disease or something like that where they can't help it. That would be a much better thing. <laughs> Save yeah, these. you don't want to get you don't want to drink yourself down to your last two brain cells. That that's true too. It's not just your liver that takes those hits, right? Though, yeah. <laughs> if you do, in our <laughs> final story. Oh god. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Scientists are now growing brain cells in labs that apparently can play Pong. This is what we're doing. <laughs> that's that's some scientist out there. <laughs> Researchers have grown brain cells in a lab yeah. and taught them to play Pong. <laughs> you just decided to throw that segue the hell out the window, didn't you? <laughs> just like... <laughs> That was so good. <laughs> Santosh in a lab. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Brett Kagan. Yes, and at all. Uh-huh. Yeah. Working for the company Cortical Labs. Uh-huh. Publishing in the journal Neuron has created lab-grown brain cells. Not a lab-grown brain. Cells. Yes. Cells. cells. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Small plural. Well, uh, and you're right. The, there isn't a whole brain in here, but it is considered an in vitro neural network. So, in, in vitro meaning essentially a bunch of petri dishes. Right. Exactly. Um, vitro meaning in glass. So, yeah. I know this doesn't really relate to the liver, but I don't know if I'm excited or horrified that. People are just growing brains and teaching them to play 1970s video games. So, <laughs> so yeah. mini, mini brains, as they're called. Or organoids. So these would be neural organoids. First were produced in 2013 in order to study microcephaly, which is a genetic disorder where the brain is too small. Mm-hmm. And these organoids have produced in a bunch of labs and have been used for research into brain development. But prior to this study, no one's ever tried to plug into or interact with the organoids. They're just say, let's see how this organ functions. Now, again, one of the things that makes this mildly less horrifying is no one is trying to claim that these brains are sentient. <laughs> you're you're correct. You're right. They're they're not generally intelligent. They're not able to seek. But then again, they're stuff. playing a video game. What? You what have a they... little brain in a jar. 
Yeah. <laughs> Don't argue semantics with me. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You have I'm a sorry. brain in a jar playing a video game. Well, That's were... what we have humans have created. That's what we're up to now. They, they were programmed to. Yeah, they were actually built specifically for trying to play this video game. And you know, they were you know they weren't terribly good at it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Did the ability of a lab-grown brain to play a game that was the height of entertainment in the 1970s not impress you? <laughs> because they grew human they grew human brains from stem cells and mouse embryos to a collection of about mm, 800,000. Yeah, so it's a, then, that's a teeny tiny you can't you can see that as a like a it looks like a little salaire in a in a dish, yeah. And they connected this mini brain to the video game via electrodes. So, like you know, yeah. they plugged it in. <laughs> well, they they grew the cells like in a layer on top of the actual chip, like on the silicon chip. And the electrodes would show which side the ball was on and how far from the paddle. That's it. That's the whole programming. Yeah, Those... yeah, so <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, the cells then produced electrical activity of their own. It's not like the researchers saying they're okay. Here's what I want you to do: they just grew them on the plate, turned the game on, and then the cells started playing. And here's where it gets exciting or horrifying, depending on your feeling about this research. Okay, as the game continued the cells expended less and less energy to keep it going. So what, except when the ball passed a paddle, meaning one side lost, right. and the game restarted with a ball at a random point, you would see a burst of activity indicating recalibration to a new situation, and the mini-brain would then learn to play under the new circumstances within five minutes with its success rate statistically well above random chance. Right. And there was two groups, okay? So they they took a dish brain. That was the name of the... <laughs> and my new favorite insult. Listen yeah. here, dish brain. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they named it, Josh. They, they gave it a name. They called it dish brain. <laughs> So they they gave it sensory information, which in this case, the sensation was actually the electronic location of the paddle and the ball. So that was basically, this thing couldn't do anything else. It sensed where the paddle was and where the ball was. Like that was its only stimulation. And then they gave the the dish brain either feedback Right, saying that they just said, "Oh, okay, it, the, the the ball went past you." Okay, negative feedback, um, or oh, you hit the ball, so you got a, a a good feedback kind of a thing. And then they did have another control where they basically they didn't train the brain at all, so they didn't give it any type of stimulus or feedback or anything else like that. So then, what they did then was they actually you know, stopped the feedback. They, they let the brain just play by itself. And they found that in that case, the stimulated brain, the one that would have been taught and started to learn, actually started to utilize that information and play better. So <laughs> dish brain doesn't know it's playing Pong. Yeah. It's simply responding to it. But when people look at tissues at the moment they're just seeing if there's activity or no activity but the purpose of brain cells is to process information in real time yeah and teaching dish brain to play pong may one day be used to test treatments for other neurodegenerative diseases such as alzheimer's how few brain cells can you have and still achieve learning or function in terms of feedback or you know can you teach areas post-stroke or in Alzheimer's or others to learn and rehabilitate faster? Or maybe you could grow Terminators. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, only because the Terminators, okay. you know, back... You laugh, but... No, I know, I know. <laughs> no, listen. <laughs> listen, Santosh. Okay, okay, I'm, okay, I'm listening, I'm listening. You laugh at me and my <laughs> distrust of AI, but <laughs> Dr. Kagan's team is specifically yeah. working with bioethicists to ensure they do not accidentally create a conscious brain <laughs> well yeah you you do have to the chances are really small right because especially in a system they're never like this, zero well, they're never zero but in a system like this especially because there's like there's a physical restraint on how these brains can grow right there's there's a tiny dish like it can't grow our, like our brains need to actually have physical space in order to grow to the size that they are and have enough neurons and everything else in order to, you know, make the complex system that is a human. This is, you're keeping it in a little dish, just that, that's just the start. But you're also giving it a very narrow set of parameters, which is, we'll call this thing paddle and this thing ball and stimulation will be ball hits paddle like it's it's everything but i i do agree that this is kind of the beginning of something and it's not really the beginning either because as you said we've been working with brain organoids for quite a while and i think more and more as we do this type of a research we're going to have to have a tight relationship between scientists and students of humanities like ethics and philosophy and that kind of a thing because as we make these systems more and more complex by the way whether it's living brain cells or whether it's thinking computers that are pure silicon there's going to be some point you're absolutely right josh where we get damn close to what we consider sentience and in that case we're going to have to know ahead of time what to do so we're not taken by surprise <laughs> now i think the one of the things that the bioethicists are doing is if it gets like too close to sentience they're going to show it i don't know TikTok. no no <laughs> they'll introduce them to tide pod challenges i don't know i don't know how they're going to protect us well the tide pod is closer yeah. to what you're talking about because as I said, this is just a tiny little dish. Hey, so you just dish brain. a you little bit detergent? of a little bit of bleach, and it's gone. Like it's literally just absolutely toast. So, I'm melting. Oh no! Don't not like that. No, that <laughs> you're not. No, you're not destroying a sentient thinger. You're just you know. Is it, That's how it starts, yeah. Santosh. So, um, Josh, welcome just, our robot overlords. No, just to uh, uh, let you know, uh, in composite, like how long the brain took. Um, it learned in about five minutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> without being taught, it simply said this paddle, this ball, and the brain and dish brain said, "Oh, if I keep making ball hit paddle, I keep yeah. getting feedback." They didn't say these are the rules of pong. Right, they said, right. Here's paddle. Here's ball. Dish brain said, "Ooh, pong, pong, <laughs> pong." Yeah. So about as long as like you know an average eight year old in 1972 would take to master an Atari console, and now it, it, your average 70 year old learning to use an online app. Sure, absolutely. So. And, and it, of course, it, it wasn't as good as we would think it to be. It, it did often miss the ball, but the success rate was just much, much better than chance, essentially. <clears throat> it's, it's like a, you know, like if your three year old little brother or sister found your Atari paddle and just started, you know. So that's it for this week. Oh, God. We just scared the shit out of everybody. <laughs> I don't know about you, Santos, but I sure could use a drink. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. We'll get you a new liver. It'll be fine. We've got three ways to do it. So <laughs> that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. Thank you so, so much to all of you supporting us on our new ACAST Plus Thank platform you guys. with conversations that go nowhere. Um, if you'd like to subscribe, you will no longer hear the ads that have finally started playing. I'm also going to work on better transitions into those ads. Until <laughs> next time. <laughs> Wash your hands, wear yeah. a mask, get your shots. Don't Please touch don't any armadillos. Yeah. Don't touch armadillos. Do not drink enough to destroy your liver. Drink responsibly. 
And when you've done all those things, find a country that's open, grab a friend to go with, and uh, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.